0: You are listening to The Floating Point on Rave Pubs Radio. I am your host, Hope Roth. Uh, With me today, I have Paul Zeely from Harman. Very excited to have a conversation with him. Before we get started, I want to thank our sponsor, Ingram Micro, for all of your AVIT needs. Thanks, Ingram Micro. All right, Paul, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
0: It's nice to have you, you know, we've, we've geeked out in other forms, but yeah. this, this is our first chance to, to talk on the floating point, so thank I, you so much.
1: No problem, I hope I'm worthy, I'm not actually a programmer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's okay, I only play one on... I-
1: or I'm a very bad programmer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, sometimes the worst programmers are the ones that know what know the pitfalls better than, the re- better than others. I put myself in that category.
1: Yeah, it's just that that's not what I do for a living. You know, I can hack around and stuff, but uh, programming is a discipline that you have to practice. and, And I don't do nearly enough practice to really consider myself a programmer.
0: Well. We, we still have things to learn. I, I actually, so so for those of you who aren't inside my own head right now, I asked Paul on, um, because we had a great conversation at an Infocom training a few weeks ago when we were all snowed in in lovely Washington, D.C.
1: You were snowed in. I had the best airport experience ever. Okay. It was empty. Uh, my The only time ever in D.C. that I've gotten on my airplane is left on time and just, driven straight out to the runway and taken off. <laughs> all
0: right, so, so Paul got all of my good, of my good travel luck and I had a glass of wine at the bar. And we, we had a conversation about how you structure things when you have more than one person working on a system. And, and it started off talking about degrees and who needs a comp sci degree and who could get an MIS and things like that. But, but we were talking about, you know, you need one person to architect a system. That's the person with the vision. I'm the one that's having visions, but uh, there is one person that has the vision. And then, you know, you, maybe they help get things set up, but they, you know, at a certain point with a large enough system, especially a scalable system, it needs to get passed off to other people. So that's basically what our conversation was. And I, and I thought we would share some of that with our listeners.
1: Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, and, and I am actually qualified to talk about systems architecture. That is something I practice a lot. Um, yeah, the, a lot of times the idea is just that if there is a large system, it's still considered you know a single product. And that may be something that either has a lot of rooms or um, uh, a big piece of programming or, or something else that's going to require different people to write different parts of it or even something that is going to be maintainable and grow over time. And so everybody's had the experience of uh, picking up a piece of code they didn't write and have to kind of move on with it. Um, It's even worse if you're picking up an unfinished, undebugged piece of code (laughs) that you have to then finish and debug and move on. Um,
0: At my company, we call that figuring out where all the bodies are buried.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Knowing where the bodies are buried is a very important skill. So, a lot of the the, the high-level idea of systems architecture is to try to break a big task or project down into a bunch of pieces that can be dealt with standalone. Um, and the important part is then um, specifying how they talk to each other. So... So, if it was rooms, it all had to tie into a central management system, you would say, okay, this is the type of central management interface you have. There might be some look and feel. So, you you find out the parts that are common that need to be specified, get those specified and, and laid out across the project, and then each of those things can be dealt with individually. And if something fails, the idea is if all of those interfaces and touch points are specified, even if you have to take out that piece of code, throw it away and start over, it should fit in. Um, so if you need to change it. Um, another way of dealing with this and a lot of times in code is designing for reuse. So you're taking a piece of code and say you say, you know, I use, I use a BiAmp um, DSP all the time with, with a dialer. I'm going to write a piece of code for that that I can plug in every time and have it work the same way no matter how that room or that thing is set up because that's because I, I'm gonna save time um, over the long haul. And it may take one and a half times to write that as really reusable because you may be putting in extra hooks or extra features or things, but then once you have that, um, you're using 0.2 times the, the amount of time to to put in that that feature over and over again. So thinking about these things in architecting can really be a big long-term cost and time saver as well as standardized code. If you find a bug in that, you can fix it in that one module and then go back and paste it into the 25 you screwed up previously (laughs) before you found out the bug. So there's a lot of advantages to that kind of discipline but it is it is a discipline. it's something that you have to think about plan for and and kind of kind of move to
0: I, you're speaking my language paul
1: <laughs> yeah and and you know there 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 is certainly always you know the need for quick and dirty, but any uh, anytime that we can employ you know build this kind of discipline and configuration management into something um. It's going to ultimately provide better quality to the customer and um, have things be more more maintainable over time um, debugging nobody likes debugging yeah. <laughs> so so you know if you have reusable or modular code um, or or a system like that your your you're also Eliminating duplication of effort in in that debugging and in in customer time, and and I've seen people carry this out um, insanely. So, for instance, our product RPM, which is Rapid Project Maker, which is which is just a web um, tool to go and write code for Simple Rooms, and you you kind of pick the products and. And say what your inputs and outputs are and and kind of pick the functions and it writes the code for you. One of the interesting secrets about that is that core Netlinks code, which is the the AMX um, uh, code base, there's only one piece of Netlinks code in there. And every single RPM project in the world has that same piece of code. And all it's doing from that point is calling configuration files and loading modules. So everything is standardized. And so it becomes very easy when they want to do updates on that. They've got a single piece of code that they're dealing with. And then those um, modules and support files, if they get updated, they're standardized and um, AMX uses a, um, a standard called Snappy, um, standard Netlinks API, um, which is probably due to be updated um, just because it's it's getting a bit long in the tooth from the, the theories and, and types of things it supports. But um, the advantage of that is in the Snappy world, a monitor monitors, a monitor. Mm-hmm. So if I have a Sony monitor and I replace it with a Samsung monitor, it's just a matter of swapping that driver file and everything still works and none of my code has to go. And that's a, a a good place to put things like modular. So, because I mean, how many possible monitor controls can there be, you know, even, even if you're dealing with TV tuners and channels and everything else, there's just a certain number of controls. Um, and that even addresses a pet peeve from manufacturers like mine. Um, my view of the world within a, within a brand or set of brands like I have, there should only ever be one command for power on. And I really (laughs) don't care what it is, but, but I think that the programmer on the API should say, Oh, it's a Harman device. It's power.on or what, or whatever it is. But um, we have programmers who also like to be inventive and want to think of, you know, themselves. So they've come up with an, another creative way to, to do a syntax or programming. But um, I really believe that standardization is the programmer's friend.
0: Yes, <laughs> I, I agree with you. I mean, the wonderful thing about standards is there are so many to pick and choose from. <laughs> but,
1: but it doesn't actually matter which standard you use. Just it's just, just, just standardizing. And, and so the, the same thing with architectures. Is you go through and 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 you build things and you standardize and this this really pushes to a lot of places past the programming where where it really makes an impact to the customer because n- nobody really thinks about um, the cost of operation and maintenance mm-hmm. and the cost of changes um, and things like configuration management so so. One of the things I tell people about RPM is, I don't care if you pay the the integrator. Cause RPM's free. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just in, included. It's just another one of the things in our tool set. And I said, I don't care if you pay the integrator the exact amount of same amount of money to have RPM code, as as for custom written code. I think the RPM code is a better value because everybody's had that case where. They've got the room in, a bug comes in, a programmer comes in, spends two days fixing it. Everything's great for a year and a half. They say, okay, we need to swap the monitor. The guy grabs the piece, a piece of code from the server because the guy who, never, who did the bug fixes never checked it back in.
0: Mm-hmm. He
1: goes, swaps the monitor, reintroduces the bug, which if they're lucky, they can go find the code. If they're not lucky, they've got to debug it again <laughs> and, and run through, whereas... One of the things about RPM is because it's cloud-based and everything, um, the last copy of the code is always available. And yeah. so, so configuration management is inherent in it. Although technically we don't make it available to the, the people, the way our databases are, we could actually go back and if somebody called us and said, oh, I need a code revision from three versions ago, we could go back and, and, and pull that for them. Yeah. Um, Though usually it's easy enough to in that particular tool to back up and go forward, Mm -hmm. that that it's easy. But that configuration management is really powerful, uh, especially now because the world—it's not as acceptable. You know, I've been doing this kind of thing for a long time. Um, Fifteen years ago, it would go okay. Here's your shiny new conference room everything works, sign off, I'll see you in eight years when you're ready to, <laughs> ready to uh, rebuild it because you're sick of it. And and it goes like that. Uh, but that's not what we can do. I mean, even conference rooms that are five years old were analog and, you know, there's moves to digital, there's always new tools. We're seeing more need for things like USB interfaces on DSPs, because even companies that have Um, Cisco, Polycom, VTC also have a very legitimate need for Skype, Zoom, WebEx in the conference room. Mm -hmm. So so, um, companies want to look at and reevaluate and do these little tweaks every year or two. And that's really prohibitively expensive um, with the way the AV world has traditionally done business on this highly customized, non-standardized programming.
0: I totally agree with you. Um, I would rather spend an extra six hours getting something set up, know that I can tweak it very easily later, and then when the customer says, oh, by the way, we want a Roku in every room, it's very easy to go in and add it after the fact versus going in and touching every single piece of code 50 times. Right, right. Um, so I, I'm, I, I, I program like I drive, which is very defensively and always (laughs) assuming that someone's just going to swerve right in front of me because I'm from Boston. So
1: fast and in the right lane.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I, I definitely agree with you on that one.
1: Yeah. I I went to college in Boston and, uh, I was just driving there, I guess at Thanksgiving time and, uh, man, that, that was scary. <laughs> yeah. It's like wow, I used to do this all the time. I can't I can't imagine having to do this four lane fade uh, you know across uh, storo Drive to 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 get down <laughs> yeah. underneath. It's like yeah. Yeah, Boston you have to be a defensive driver.
0: Yeah. It's <laughs> it's made me a better programmer, I think. <laughs> um yeah, I I mean, I remember I remember I used to work on site in a university and one of our integrators, you know, some guy quit and he threw his laptop in the trash on his way out. And all of a sudden we couldn't update any of our rooms. And we were basically having to wait until they got to the end of the life cycle. And we were just going to replace everything. Cause you know, at a certain point, especially if somebody did something, you know, back then I wasn't as programmer yeah. the way I am now, now I would just reprogram it and it wouldn't be a big deal. But back then we basically just had to wait until the, the rooms got gutted and we couldn't make a single change. I mean, can you imagine someone not being able to make a single change in their conference room? these Oh, day?
1: Oh, I can including and, and code ownership, notwithstanding, And I'm certainly not going to open that debate. <laughs> um,
0: We're not touching that one.
1: Uh, but you know, that's, that's always that big issue where a lot of times, you know, I'd be, I'd be called in to consult or do something. And, um, you know, they'd have a room and I'd say, do you have the code? And they'd go, uh, it's on the machine there. See, we can run it. <laughs> and and it's like, well, you know, this is uh, this is a very, very expensive thing. But I also have seen tragic things happen where the one copy of a big piece of code is on the laptop of the programmer And, you know, it floods or the hard drive dies or, or anything else, um, or they, they, they quit. (laughs) And, um, you know, that's, that's potentially devastating to, to a company that, that has to, to support their customers Mm -hmm. often for, for a period of time. So, so tools like, Subversion and Git and and these um, the, these tools for being able to check in software, do revision control um, and see what the latest version is, um, which also allows you to roll things back because, you know, everybody's made a uh, fixed a problem only to cause a bigger one.
0: <laughs> oh, I, I only do that about six times a day.
1: Right. <laughs> But, but sometimes you, it's, it's nice to be able to, to go back and, and, and get that older piece of code. Um, so those tools, I, 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 think like a, I think a lot of people, a lot of AV companies try them out, but I think it's spotty. I've seen a few of the larger companies really get fanatical about, about configuration management and keeping it, but it's an incredibly good practice not just from a programming and reuse, but from a a risk and liability standpoint, yeah. even, even just the point, you know, I try to keep, and I don't always do it, but I'm, I'm good about backups because I have a basic philosophy of how many days work am I willing to lose mm-hmm. <laughs> at any given time? And that's what, uh, <laughs> what uh, forces me to, to do backups.
0: <laughs> they say there's, they say there's uh... Two kinds of people, those who have experienced data loss and those who will.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: well. I mean, it's just a matter of time. Yeah. I and, 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 you know, doing what we do, there's ladders, there's, I mean, we wear hard hats for a reason. Somebody dropped a lighting fixture on my laptop about a month or so ago, and it, you know, it scratched up the whole screen. But if it had taken out the hard drive, you know, I might have lost a couple hours worth of work, but... So we have uh, Mosey, which is a backup software. Mm-hmm. It runs on all of our laptops and it does it automatically. Um, which I am a big proponent of. If you're going to do some sort of, you know, to the cloud with your things, it needs to be automatic. You ha- y- y- if you have to go in and think about it, no one ever remembers that. Yeah. So Mosey kicks off a couple times a day and it takes a backup of my laptop. And, you know, if I, if I threw my laptop at my boss's head on my way to Tahiti or I, you know, accidentally stepped off a curb in front of a bus. You know, they'd have most of my files and they'd be yeah. able to recover. And, and then we also, we do use GitHub, although I'm still trying to get everybody else to use it the way I use it. But, you know, it's there. Yeah. Uh, you can see it. You can find your files. It's very nice on a job site when somebody says, hey, you know, I need the XYZ project. And you say, oh, I checked it in last night. So it's, it's in the cloud. Go, go, go to the cloud. Um, but it's funny that you mentioned uh, large companies getting on this because we actually had an experience about a week ago where this – this kid starts emailing us, demanding all these files. And we, we were like, you know, I'm going through my stuff. And I'm like, that's odd. He, he should have all of this. And this was, I'm not going to name or shame, but this was a very large AV company that all anyone who would actually listen to this podcast will have heard of. And And it finally came out the previous guy quit and he took everything with him. So he really did basically throw his laptop at his project manager's head on the way out and they didn't have a single file and we had to send them everything because, you know, we were doing an integration. with yeah. So basically all of the files that I had sent about our IP integration, everything that I had sent about addresses to point to all of it completely gone. They had to start fresh.
1: Yeah. And they're lucky they had us sub because, <laughs> because if he had actually been doing the work they, they, they wouldn't have had it.
0: Well, he was doing the AV and I was doing the lights. Right. So this was just the back and forth. So I don't know what happened with the conference rooms, but they were able to get pretty much everything back up and running. Cause it basically just re forwarded all the emails and it wasn't yeah. that big a deal on my, on my end, but you know, that job had a triple divisible room. If he took all yeah. of his files, the poor guy that came in after him was crying. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, all of you out there, automatic backups. If you're not, if it's not automatic, you're not, you're not doing it. You yep. say you do it. It's like it's like taking out the trash. Nobody does it until they have to. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's like feeding the baby. <laughs>
0: well, they, 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 they do start to cry eventually. Well,
1: that that's when the have to happens. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> My laptop will let me know I need to take a backup when the smoke starts coming out of it.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, that is. Uh... That is often too late. And, and I've seen, I mean, I've, I've seen horror stories on, on data loss with, you know, people accidentally pushing their laptop, running laptop off a, off a file cabinet, you know, because a job site is not necessarily the, the place you're least likely to uh, <laughs> push a laptop off a high place on.
0: Yeah, or ha- or have a cable dangling out over somewhere where you know right. you shouldn't, and then somebody trips and your laptop's across the room. Yeah, that's never happened to me either. <laughs> so, I, but I wanted to get back a little bit okay. to to how you set things up when you're sharing files, and you've you know you've told yeah. somebody where the bodies have been buried you know, my company, we have, there's three of us full time. We brought on a freelancer we brought on another freelancer we brought on some junior programmers. We brought on another guy and, and where it was pretty easy for everyone to understand my style and how I liked things. All of a sudden you've got new people. And, uh, the biggest thing for us has definitely been training. Once I show everybody, this is how I set everything up. This is how I want you to set it up. I'm not just being OCD. It works like this for a reason. Um, And then everyone's pretty much on board. But I think we're now finally getting the point where I actually have to put together a standards document. And you know, these, these are the, uh, this is what we do when we have to set this kind of IP address and that sort of stuff, just so that anyone can pick up where somebody else left off. But yeah.
1: And, and, and that's real important. Um, uh, the the first place I try to deal with is anything that's a touch point or an interface. Mm -hmm. So, so, because that that becomes agreement and involves multiple people. So mm-hmm. so, uh, how IP addressing is going to work, you know, from a a project standpoint and um, and uh, with with buy in from from all the stakeholders. Um, magically choosing 192.168.1 and, and moving forward with your mm-hmm. assumption is not necessarily going to be the best thing anymore. Mm -hmm. But um, how those work, um, especially if they're VLANs and addressing space, who gets to assign IP addresses. um, That's actually one of the reasons why I particularly like AV VLANs, because a lot of times it's just still easier in the AV world to do static addressing, Mm -hmm. because you don't necessarily have good DNS or discovery or, or other things. And um, the regular IT world doesn't like that. So if you can get them to break off and say, okay, this, this is your address space. I'm just going to look the other way and you're going to do with it what you will. <laughs> um, it, it makes it easier. And, and I even organize into that point where um, there's – I'm, I'm a big fan of frameworks um, mm-hmm. as opposed to standards. So standards are a thou shalt do it this way. Frameworks are really a collection of, I found that this really works best and you should get as close as you can. Um, and
0: I, I like that.
1: And, and the whole idea of a framework is that it is, it's aspirational. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in programming, Agile is a framework. Agile is a, is a method to, to do things in short bursts, review, and, and continually refine as you're programming, you're doing something else. If you ask any hardcore programmer in one of these methodologies, if they do Agile and they're honest, they'll do, eh, we do Agile-ish because nobody could do the full rigor of line by line, all the stupid things they do in Agile, but you pick and choose and say, okay, this works for us, this works for us, this works for us. And for the most part, um, those frameworks have, have been built through, through pain. Mm-hmm. one one of the <laughs> one of the things i tell people if they take my infocom courses is if they listen to me and take it to heart and are willing to learn from the mistakes of others they will get this 8 hours of their life back because i will relate to you things that cost me hundreds <laughs> of hours to learn <laughs> it, 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 by by making the mistakes <laughs> yes. and 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 that's what frameworks are they're put put together that way so so um, when, you're, when you're looking at putting together your, your standards, you may be saying it's a framework, you, you know, because there's always some reason you're not going to, to be in a standard, but, um, but a framework is something that you can hang other things in. So you do an architecture, you deal with touch points. Um, it's not super common still to break up programming um, in the AV world. It's incredibly common in the rest of the world. So they set up software architectures and, and they build software very modularly and design how all those modules are going to fit together because then a really smart software architect can go, oh, you need this in four months, then I need 11 programmers. You need it three months, uh, I need 17 programmers because, because they know the dependencies, they know the order, and they know how much time. Each of these modules should take on an aggregate. And it used to be amazing when I worked at Lockheed Martin and, and saw some of those big software projects how accurately, in the aggregate, they could estimate those things. You know, any given module, they might be within 10%, but over the course of these huge things, they could be remarkably ag- accurate. Um, as well as any given failure is very isolated. And breaking it, it down into those small pieces with known this is what goes into it, this is what goes out to it, this is what it does, makes it easy to troubleshoot. Because you're troubleshooting a little piece of code instead of a huge piece of code. Which which is the entire idea of object-oriented programming is to break it down into objects that are are manageable by a mere human brain. I, I think even I think even within your normal conference room to keep straight, if you were gonna write it all in one big linear piece of code and and not do any objects, it would be incredibly hard to keep your brain wrapped around it as you were (laughs) were going through. And that's why you have those methods and stuff. What an architect would do is make sure that those methods are defined and everybody's using the same ones um, so that mine works with yours or vice versa, or you're writing an object while I'm writing the base code, it's defined so we can write it at the same time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because a lot of times we're used to getting the object because it comes as a module from the manufacturer or something and we have an interface to write to. But if you're in some of these codes and you've got two people developing, one might be developing the objects while one's doing the base code and you have to say, you have to predefine that interface so one doesn't have to wait for the other. <clears throat> and and although i see it a lot and and i still see it a lot in manufacturers including mine um th- the worst possible thing is the first coder that gets to it defines the interface because there is no compromise they define it however it's easiest for them screw the rest of the code <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah. that's just human nature <laughs> yeah you know I just got to get my thing done. Sure, I'm gonna I'm gonna name the interface and do everything the way I want to do. And and yes, I always I always name my um, I always name my variables after nieces, my nieces and nephews. I don't know why that's not intuitive for you to write to. <laughs> <laughs> oh
0: yeah, just hit the just just use the Timmy function. It'll be fine. Yep.
1: Yeah, I, I, just, I, I I've seen things like that so. <laughs>
0: The things, that, the things that we have all seen, Paul, the things that we have all seen. Um, yeah, and I, I, think, I think that as we start to see the equipment that we sell become more of a commodity and less of a, you know, bespoke thing that only I, as a person who has a specific dealership, can provide to you, I think we're going to start to see systems that, you know, People say, oh, a huddle room is a small system. I don't want to touch that. That's a small system. But 200 huddle rooms, that's one really big system. And then each huddle room is a little piece of that. So I think a lot of what, you know, me as a programmer, you as somebody who helps to architect things and, you know, a smart person, I think that a lot of what we're going to have as a role, you know, going forward is to help people build large scale systems that are actually, you know, small pieces of equipment.
1: Well, and, and that's really starting to think of, of the, the enterprise, you know, of the 200 rooms is really a system yeah. Because because the ultimate customer that has to deal with that, the operations manager has to maintain all of those things. As far as he's concerned, it's one system. With a whole bunch of <laughs> a whole bunch of nodes on it yeah and and so he wants that, so that value proposition from the programmer moves away from you know really cool code to saying, "What can I write that is very maintainable mm-hmm. so so that they can afford to keep these two hundred rooms running without sending people running all over the place, and even more importantly um what starts to happen is I deal with with a lot of multinationals and everything else. And as they're looking at this and they're really starting to think AV is an application. We're rolling it out as a service. We have to maintain it. The thing that keeps those um, heads of operations up at night is they truly believe or their mission is they need to pr- be able to provide that same level of service to that, office out in Iowa that has two huddle spaces as they provide in corporate headquarters, and they can't afford to park a body out in Iowa to watch those two huddle spaces. So they need to say, we can, we can do this. This is tied in in such a way that I can monitor, maintain it and, and do everything except physical break fix. So, so in, in product development, you You build these things called personas where you you build your stereotypical customer or user that it's going for so so the persona I use for that edge break fix maintenance um, is is some vaguely technical person, and I say as far as a v skills, he has to be able to pass the IKEA test, mm-hmm. which means i could I could mail him an IKEA bookcase and he could follow the directions and get it put together he's got that's that's the level of skill I need on the edge so I want to design a system that somebody who's smart enough to to follow directions can be my hands on the edge they've got to get it out of the rack they've got to get the wires swapped over in the right place and they've got to get it back in the rack but that but that's all they should have to know about AV if this overall system is designed correctly Everything else should be able to be done by the network. Um, part of that is in system design. Quite frankly, a lot of that is on the manufacturers who have not done a really good job of, of doing that. I think, I think every major manufacturer realizes that and is, is working working to, uh, working to be better at that because, because ultimately when we look at a big organization um, if, you, if you look at every cent they spend on a conference room over over the lifetime of that conference room, only about 30-35% is the cost of, of design, install, programming, commissioning. That other 65% is operational costs. So, so there's a lot more room to squeeze out from the operational costs than there is from the cost of equipment. And quite frankly... I personally would much rather squeeze it up, all that money out of the operational costs. Cause I don't get paid out of that money. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I do still get paid. I work for a manufacturer. I do still get paid out of what they pay for equipment. Yeah. So, so I want to make sure we, we have that, that value. And, and that's really the, also the answer against commoditization, both for manufacturers and for, um, AV integrators, you know, why am I doing this with you? You know, I could just go to Best Buy and buy that for forty nine dollars. And you go, yeah, but how are you going to support three hundred of those Best Buy things floated all over the place? Here, we're going to tie this in. We're going to give you ways to look at it. We're going to give you ways to fix it. We're going to give you ways to do tech support. That's very valuable.
0: We're going to give to a customer. We're going to give you alerts so that you can go in and change the projector lamp before the shareholders' meeting starts. Yeah,
1: absolutely, and that's where that value proposition, and that is really, the, the the answer that we have in industry against commoditization of consumer equipment, which is you know, on an individual basis, quite good. You know, I am, well, I'm lying. I, I. I, I do have a $4,000 presentation switch in my house, but I only do because I don't pay for those things. <laughs> I would have that $19 HDMI switch all day long at home because, you know, I can do a, a lot of other things, but, you know, be watching TV is not mission critical, you know, things that, things that happen in, in, in a home, you know, for instance, yes, I can control it off my iPad because what happens if the kids switch the, the channel on the football game while I'm watching it, I yell at the children, mm-hmm. gee, I saved all this money, isn't this great, I run it off my iPad. Um, that's a career limiting event if you mess up and change the things accidentally in the boardroom because everybody's running around with a BYOD <laughs> to do things. So, so, you know, there's a different set of risks that, that have a lot of value to, to those customers that that I think we as an industry if we plan for a program around it still have a lot of longevity yeah. longevity yeah, yeah. longevity longevity there it is longevity Whew.
0: potential
1: a, a, a lot of longevity potential against um, the commoditization the hardware prices will will continue to drop but the overall value, I think, will continue to go up because there's going to be more of these enterprise programming services things just because of the sheer volume of things that need to be managed.
0: Yeah. Well, and the thing that's funny is I think that a lot of people that are really afraid of cookie cutter codes and code and configuration-based systems are the people who are worried, you know, like I, I am every, about every other day, you know, will I have a job in five years? And so, you know, they want it to be the wild, wild west. They want to do it custom because they want to still have that. They want to be relevant. They want to have that job in five years. But the, the irony of it is, is by helping to build a configuration-based system, by embracing standards, by embracing things being, you know, cookie cutter, you know, that, that, actually, keep, that actually makes it more likely that yeah. you will, will have that job in five years.
1: Well, you might not have the exact same job, but you'll have a job in the same industry.
0: Someone will still pay me to make conference rooms vaguely work.
1: (laughs) I I worked. The majority of what I did was in the video conferencing industry from 1995 to 2010. The majority was based around video conferencing. And the entire time I was saying, okay, they've got this figured out. Um, I'm going to have to find something else to do in two years. (laughs) and it kept on growing and they changed to IP and they changed the integrated codecs and, and suddenly there's now big MCUs and everything else. So what happens is if the application is valuable, parts automatically get easy as they get, as they get figured out and -hmm. other people can do them and they're easy to duplicate, but but the application grows. So, so, you know, there's, whole ranges of things that we haven't even started to think about in the AV industry, which may fall into the AV industry. Like what starts to happen with, with the, you know, I don't know of anybody who is really doing things with, okay, can I start to do automation within this soft codec? And, and here are these other things because ultimately we're in the business of getting rid of the basket of remotes. Yes. Uh, and and really, all that is is there is nothing nothing that we do traditionally as an AV um, business um, that is anything more than than making it convenient for people who don't want to know which of the fifteen remotes to pick up and what direction to point it at.
0: Yeah. Um, or fifteen apps. I think that yeah. I, I think the modern version of that is you know everything has an API i can just control my tv from my app but if you have to use 15 apps that's like 15 remotes
1: see see one of the things i can do because i'm not married anymore (laughs) is i've been playing with lighting and stuff and i have probably six different app-based lighting environments in my house and it is the most frustrating thing if if i'm playing with that to figure out okay which app is on that room and (laughs) Everything else, and and granted, that's dysfunctional because I live I live in an experiment, but <laughs> but the um, but that's absolutely true with those apps. So so the real business we're in is streamlining that workflow. So understanding, working with the customer to understand what they're trying to do, what that desired outcome is, and what that workflow is, and then applying technology so that. It is easy for them to to use that workflow, which allows them to do what their primary job is, which is communicate or invent or whatever else, and not have to spend all that time thinking about the technology. Yeah, um, and, I, always, and that, I always, that's not going to go away.
0: Yeah, I always say that when I do when I am the very best at my job, nobody notices that I did anything.
1: Absolutely frustrating, isn't it? It is. My, <laughs>
0: Some of my best work has been so just underappreciated. (laughs) And then and then the bad jobs are the ones that come back, see Well, I wish that you and I could talk all night cuz this has been a great yeah. conversation, but
1: Absolutely. Uh, thank you.
0: Uh thank you for coming on. Um I you you're a busy guy, so I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I uh, we do always end and I forgot to prep you for this, so I apologize, but we do always end with a What are you, with,
1: you thankful for? <laughs> with I a light- know, That's my no, mother's.
0: <laughs> no, no. This is not Thanksgiving at grandma's house. No, we always end with a uh, with a lighthearted question. And that's I'll that. go first because I forgot to tell you what it was ahead of time. Um Well, we talked about those edge buildings where, you know, somebody's a plane right away. What is the farthest distance that you have traveled to do the smallest amount of work? And I have two. Uh, One was that I flew from Boston to Rochester, New York to install one small piece of equipment that flew with me. So I was basically a courier <laughs> for an interface module for an occupancy sensor. And then one is that I went all the way to Canada to upgrade the firmware. It was about a 10 minute process. And, uh, and the guy said, that was it? We paid you to come all this way to do the firmware? And I told him, have you heard the story about the guy that hits the machine with the wrench?
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: They, they paid $10,000 for the service tech to come out. He hits the machine with the wrench, the whole thing starts working again. And they said, we paid you ten thousand dollars to hit it with a wrench. And he said, No, no, you'd pay me ten thousand dollars because I knew exactly where to hit it with the wrench.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and, and the the converse of that is you spend ten hours troubleshooting something that ends up being one line of code or one checkbox and you show it to the customer and they go, Oh, that's all it was? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was that was easy to fix.
0: Oh, that was easy to fix. And yes, that, it,
1: was, it was very easy to fix. It was very hard to find which <laughs> line of code to change.
0: Yes, and that is why all of our service contracts come with the caveat that we need remote access. But <laughs>
1: uh, absolutely.
0: So what is so what is the farthest? Well, you've gone?
1: I will go the farthest I've gone, but I would say it was a good four hours of work was from Seoul, Korea to D.C. And that was for four hours worth of work. Oh, and, and the majority of it was not really for the work, but they were afraid to do it without me there. So <laughs> I, was, I was in Korea for three weeks and I went home for a day oh, no. to, to do this work and got on a plane the next day and flew back to Korea. <laughs> think
0: that, what is that, Binky Syndrome? <laughs> yeah. Lovey, Lovey Syndrome? Yeah. I've had that before, you're a victim of your own success.
1: Yeah, and, and, and to that point, just, just to, to bring in uh, talking about the potential disasters, so this was a huge um, military simulation facility that I essentially ran and automated and there was huge automated switchings and stuff and we would, essentially I orchestrated war games all through AV equipment. And I had built this facility and a bunch of others. But anytime we were putting together these exercises, it would get down to a day or two before. And I would write an automation program that would kick everything off and put it on the desktop. We're running off a a Mac um, computer. And so right in the middle of the desktop would be the icon that says, click here if Paul is dead (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> which, would, which would boot start all of the processes for the simulations and get all the presets and environments set up. And, oh, and funny. it was a normal script I would be writing anyway, but I made sure that people could find it. So if I got hit by a bus, they they could continue on. And um, well, I did uh, I did um, DC to St. Louis for probably 15 minutes work, or actually to, uh, for, to, flew into St. Louis and then out to Scott Air Force Base, drove out to Scott Air Force Base for what was probably 15 minutes worth of work, <laughs> which, was, which was a, a firmware upgrade and, and load some code and everything worked. I hung out for a while, and tested, but, but really the actual meat of the work was probably about 15 minutes. But that was a non-connected, secure military network. And once again, the the customer, who I'm very sure I could have walked through it, just didn't feel comfortable and, and had no problem saying, okay, get on a plane and come out here to do this. <laughs> Actually, after that, I was able to talk them into I gave them a laptop with all the programming tools and everything on it, mm-hmm. and they did have a guest network at that base. So, so we set it up, I said, okay, uh, plug this into the, the isolated AV network, get on the guest network, and then um, we used a remote desktop for me to get in. But it was customer sitting there watching because of course se- secure and everything but we I finally got them to do that so I could log in and do minor programming changes because I think they would have had me fly out once a week forever just to just to hold their hands it was a very um, the end customer was a general and he was very picky and changing the way he wanted things so it was one of those customers that was that room was never going to be done yeah i know those because you know oh we need to do this oh we need to change it for that so yeah, um, I, I've done a lot of that. And I think that, that remote access and automated tools and, and anything that I can do to avoid that is, is um, standard. Yeah. And and one of the reasons we're actually seeing a lot of that, and then I'll let you end, and, and I, I thought of it. So we do work with NASA. Mm-hmm. And NASA has a centralized AV group that sits, I think, in Huntsville, Alabama, Um But they have a um, 24 hour SLA from a time a problem is reported till the time it has to be fixed is 24 hours. So if they have a broken piece of gear, um, they actually have to fly somebody to meet the RMA because they don't have somebody to program and and load the code in it. And we Mm -hmm. actually set up a program with them where we have pre-positioned spares, you know, that are owned waiting, waiting for an RMA. And we tell them, okay, go down to the closet, take this serial number out. That way they can immediately do it, load their code on it and overnight it up there to have somebody plug it in because they, I can't, they were spending tens of thousands of dollars a year on those quick little in, last minute airfares to go meet a part.
0: Wow
1: because because of the the way they did it. So we worked with them on that, but the ultimate idea would be that we can do all of this over the network and 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 save a lot of those air miles of the road weary um, firmware upgrader. There
0: you go. We all have to we all have <laughs> to go see our families eventually. <laughs> well, uh, well
1: thank thank
0: you. thank you so much for joining me. Um, Paul Ziele from Harmon, always a pleasure. You have been listening to The Floating Point on Rave Pubs Radio. I'm your host, Hope Roth, and I will see you soon.